Okay, good morning. Welcome to uh, the second of our sessions on Adam and Eve in exile. Second of our, our sessions on uh, what the Bible has to say about uh, male and female. I'm going to pray and then I'll explain where we're going this morning. Lord Jesus, you are our Messiah, you are the, the prophet sent uh, to open the eyes of the people. And so we pray this morning uh, for your grace to us. Open our eyes, we pray, uh, to see uh, the truth of your word, uh, the beauty of your word, uh, the rightness, the fitness of your word. And give us, we pray, uh, your spirit that we might receive it uh, with joy. Bless us, we pray, that we might be uh, faithful worshippers uh, of our Lord. We ask in your own name. Amen. Okay, so as I say, session two of uh, this series, looking at Adam and Eve in exile, what does it mean to be men and women uh, out in a, a fallen world? Uh, last time we looked at, well, we just began to set the scene, really. Uh, we spoke about the need to have scriptures as our authority uh, in an area where, frankly, we're heavily influenced by our culture, our upbringing, uh, our family. And we also began to look at this idea of complementarity, uh, I said that broadly speaking, there, are, there have been two approaches to the whole question of gender. One is uh, roughly known as egalitarianism, which more or less says, although men and women are, of course, different, okay, it's, not, it's not a transgender position where you're kind of totally fluid, of course they're different. When it comes to kind of roles, particularly in marriage in the church, that really anything goes. Male, female, uh, there are no restrictions. On the other hand, there is what you broadly call a complementarity position, a complementarian um, complement, meaning things that go together rather than complement, meaning aren't you lovely? And I think the Bible broadly teaches this complementarian position. Just to give the caveat I gave last week, um, they both become kind of labels for movements, uh, which means you won't necessarily want to get on board on everything with a movement. Um, so there are going to be some things that some complementarians think and teach that personally I might not agree with. But broadly speaking, those are the two categories. And we began to see in Genesis 1 that actually the whole world, the whole universe, is created with a complementarity in it. <clears throat> so when you read through Genesis 1, the creation, everything comes in pairs, or lots of things come in pairs. Night and day, heaven and earth, uh, the seas and the land, the moon and the sun. And, and so even before you've got to the creation of man and woman, uh, you, you've seen that, that God puts two things together that aren't better, worse, or senior, junior, or more significant, less significant, but are different, and their interaction very often brings, li brings life. Okay. Um, we need night and day to sustain us as human beings, don't we? Um, we need uh, the, the, the rain that comes from above to water the land that is below. Uh, and today I want to zoom in a little bit more on the creation of man and woman. Uh, let me say one other thing by, by way of introduction. The, the, I think particularly on this topic, the pressure is to come to the Bible, come to different passages, bringing our questions. So I come to the, to the passage with the what does it say about who's in charge question, or what does this got to say about equality question, or what does it say about church leadership question. So if you like, we're, we're importing our questions, we're bringing them to the text and trying to find answers. Now, the, the, I think the Bible does speak to all those questions, but it doesn't do so just with kind of random verses here and there, random rules. 
Um, rather, it sort of sets patterns uh, that mean that when you come across a, a, sort of a very direct rule, like I do not permit a man, sorry, a woman to teach or have authority in, in 1 Timothy 2, it hasn't sort of come as a bolt from the blue. It is part of this big fabric that God has been weaving. So that today, as much as possible, I, I kind of don't want to answer specific questions, but rather I want us to look at Genesis 2 and just look at the text and look at some of the things that come out of the text. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, actually. So we're going to start with, with, the, with Genesis 1. And let me read verses 27 and 28, famous verses about the creation of man and woman. Uh, so this is creation in the image of God. And, and here we're looking really at the unity in the making and the mission of men and women. The unity. God, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, let's start with the making before the mission. The making uh, of men and women. Uh, God created man, verse 27, in his own image. That is the word Adam. Okay? The, the, so the Hebrew word Adam um, is just the word for man. So we, we turn it into a name, Adam, Adam and Eve. But, it, but it's, it's just the Hebrew word for a man. So in the first line of that verse, God created man in his own image. Um, the word Adam, man, is functioning as the name of the whole of humanity. So you can sum up humanity um, as essentially, I suppose in, in English, mankind. Um, as in, in other words, it is the male word there that stands for, the word for a man, that stands for the whole human race. Uh, it's mankind, if you like, not womankind. And yet straight away, we move from the singular to the plural. The second line of that little poem, in the image of God, he created him. There's the singular, man, Adam. Male and female, he created them. Um, gender is the one distinction made at that point. God doesn't say tall and short or fat and thin or ginger and blonde or blue-eyed and brown-eyed or any other sort of distinguishing factor, kind and tough or whatever, all the other things that distinguish human beings. Okay, and everyone in this room is distinguished from everybody else in some way, but the one distinction that is observed uh, is that of gender. Now, both male and female are therefore in the image of God. Verse 27, it's not only the man who bears the image. Both are in the image of God. Both male and female are special creations. Uh, so in light of this, and particularly if we kind of imagine there hadn't been a week's break since the last session, to ask which is better, male or female, man or woman, or which is more important or which is more valuable, is like asking the same question of, you know, the sun and the moon, which is better? Sky and earth, land and sea, birds and fish. God has yet again made a distinction, but not a kind of ranking. Uh, and so right from the first chapter of the Bible, male and female are different and yet totally equal in value, image of God, dignity, glory. There is no difference uh, there whatsoever. And then you come to the mission. Uh, the, what are they called to do? God blessed them, 
plural. Okay, they're equally blessed. Uh, verse 26. Uh, sorry, that was verse 28. Verse 26, even earlier. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them. There's the singular plural thing again. Let, let's make Adam in our image and let them. So again, man standing for the whole male and female, the whole humankind. But let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And on we go. Uh, verse 26, they're both given dominion. In verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the earth. Sometimes that's called the cultural mandate, these first commands. Well, they are given to humanity. Uh, both receive uh, the commands of God. They're given to, to mankind, if you like, male and female. So, so far, that, that is basically a lot, most of that is unity. Other than the fact that the human race is, is, can, be, can be called Adam, man, okay, the, the race of man as opposed to the race of gophers or beavers or elephants, um, rather than the race of woman. Other than that, uh, there's great unity in the creation account in Genesis 1. What I want, want you to do in, in tables, because I spoke far too much last week, um, is look at those two passages in Genesis 2. Rather than reading the whole of Genesis 2, um, we'll just look at those two passages. And I, I want you around tables to try and just spot as many differences between men and women in relation to their, their making and their mission. In other words, in relation to how they're made and what they're told to do. You don't need to draw loads of conclusions from it. It's an observation, if you like. Um, Yeah, let's do... Is is that clear? Is that all right? Understand what we're doing? Differences from those passages in Genesis 2? Bro, over to you. Have a good sort of seven, eight minutes, something like that. So, let's come back together there. Uh, In chapter 2 of Genesis, um, essentially you get a kind of zoom focus on the creation of man and woman. So in chapter one, you've, got the, you've had this sort of big picture, seven days, um, and the, the kind of summary creation account, which we looked at in, in verses 27, 28. Um, and then chapter two, it, it's not, it's not a, a competing account or as if it's sort of some different approach. Uh, rather, it's zooming in uh, more specifically on uh, the creation of man and woman, the zoom lens, if you like. And it's in chapter two that you get to see some of the distinctions coming out more clearly. So again, largely making observations rather than drawing huge conclusions, though we'll, we'll touch on a few. Uh, what are some of the differences in the making? Um, let me go through a few that, that I think are there, and if, if I've missed any, you can tell me afterwards. Uh, first of all, Adam is formed from the ground. Adam's formed from the ground. Um, I said earlier that Adam is just the, the Hebrew word for man, and he's formed from the Adamah, the ground. So Adam... Adam and the ground, um, man and the, the ground. I, was, I, can't, I couldn't think of, um, like a, I don't think there's any equivalent name in, in, in English, but it's a bit like, it's a bit like um, you know, uh, if, if we had, instead of women and men, we had women and you know, earthers or something like that, if that was the name for, 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 uh, for men. So the, the, the male name, okay, the, the name for man, and the name for earth, or the ground, the Adamar, are tightly linked together, which makes sense because he is formed from the ground. Uh, The woman, on the other hand, is formed differently, isn't she? She's not formed from the ground. She is taken from the man, from the side of the man. And in the little 
song that Adam sings in, in verse 23. Uh, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. There actually our English does help um, because woman and man are clearly related, as they are in, again in, in the Hebrew. So here, if we were sticking in the Hebrew words, uh, that verse would read, she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Um, there's more than one Hebrew word for man. So far, it's always been the Adam word, all the way through chapter one and up to this stage in chapter two. But there's another word for man, which is Ish. And the word for woman is Isha. Okay, again, you see how they're related. The, the woman has come from the man, Ish and Isha. She's not at this stage notice Eve. She's later going to be called Eve after the fall. But for now, she's Isha. Uh, so there's one difference, one from the ground, one um, Adam from the ground, and Isha from uh, Adam's side. There's also obviously the difference in terms of the order. Adam's created first, Isha, the woman, second. And again, this isn't first, best, second, worst, or gold and silver, or something like that. But it's not irrelevant. So just to dip our toes in a, in a, in a much later passage, in 1 Timothy, when Paul makes that claim that is the one that gets everyone so worked up I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man he doesn't say because there's a problem here in Ephesus about that or he doesn't make any kind of any reference to what's going on in that particular church rather he grounds it in this creation account for Adam was formed first then Eve so the order is not accidental God of course could have snapped his fingers and made them at the same time but he doesn't. Man first, then woman. Again, not first best, but there is an ordering there. And also, in terms of where they're made, you see, Adam is made outside the garden. He's made out there in the world, and then he's put into the garden. Uh, verse, where are I? Too small. Verse 15, he gets put into um, the garden. Uh, Eve, on the other hand, from verse 15 onwards, all the action takes place in the garden. So Eve is made in the garden, in the kind of sanctuary. Um, the, the garden is their, is their home. It's like the temple. It's the, um, it's the kind of centre, if you like, of everything. And they're, they're there to be sent out into the world um, to work. Adam is, is made out there, whereas Eve is made in here, in the garden. So there's some differences in the making. There's also some differences in the mission or some distinctions. It is to Adam in verse 15... Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, at this stage, Isha, the woman hasn't been made, took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. It is a man who gets that work and keep the garden command. Um, and therefore, that's another little kind of um, link between Adam and the ground. Adam is particularly associated with the ground, both because of his name, we've already said that, Adam and Adam are, and work in the soil, because that command is given directly to him. And so, when we get to the, you know, the fall, I know you didn't look at this passage, but when we get to the fall and the curses, just look at what God says to the man. Verse 17 of chapter 3. Uh, so, what's the punishment particularly spoken to man? God has spoken a punishment to the serpent, another one to the woman, but here to the man. Verse 17, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Why is the ground curse spoken to Adam? 
Why didn't God just put Adam and Eve next to each other and make these curses to both of them okay, jointly? Well, because there's a particular link between Adam and the ground, Adam and working the soil. Look how it goes on. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, talking to Adam, your face, you shall eat bread. To return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Adam and working the ground. Adam and work, in other words, are, are more tightly bound together than Eve and working the ground. Now, again, I'm not saying that is utterly absolute. So if you look how Adam's curse goes on, um, out of it you were taken, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Clearly that applies to Eve too. She is going to die. It's not just Adam who's going to die. But it is interesting that all that the kind of work curses are spoken to Adam, not to both of them jointly. How that fits with how he's made, how he's named, and the task he's been given. Uh, also, Adam is given, just back on sort of differences, Adam is given the role of a prophet. How does Eve know, or Eve she'll become, how does she know not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, she, she never heard God say that, did she? See, when God gives that command... Uh, in verse 16, you may eat of the, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. From the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Isha doesn't exist. The woman doesn't exist. It is Adam's job, who has received that word directly, it is Adam's job to speak that to Eve. Again, that's why Paul makes that, um, that point in 1 Timothy 2, Adam first and then Eve. It has always been Adam's job to preach God's word, to speak God's word uh, to Eve. And we remember that Adam is a picture of Christ and Eve a picture of the church. That makes even more sense, doesn't it? Because ultimately it is Christ who speaks, preaches to his church, not the church he preaches to Christ. Adam has always been meant to be a picture of Christ and Eve, the bride, the church. Uh, There are still more distinctions. It is Adam who's told to name the animals. Again, Esher is not on the scene. Uh, he names each of them, and naming in the Bible is an exercise of authority. Um, you know, patriarchs name their children, or in baptism, God puts his name on you. It's a kind of authority saying, I am saying that you are an elephant, you are a snake, or however it worked. It is an exercise of authority, it's not just a little game. And twice, Adam names his wife. So in verse 23 of chapter 2, she shall be called, now I've named all the animals, but none of those are a good partner, then God makes the woman, he rejoices, and then he names her, just as he named everything else. She shall be called Isha. You're going to be Isha. And then after the fall, um, Adam again names his wife. Verse 20 of chapter 3. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Uh, there's still more. Um, Adam's told to guard the garden and protect it. Um, Again, back in verse 15, he's to work the ground, but also keep it. That is a, um, that's kind of guarding, guarding word. It's it's about protection, I suppose, looking after, um, keeping out the bad guys. Uh, It was his job to have stamped on Satan's head. When Satan slithered in and started trying to sort of seduce um, Adam and Eve into sin, Adam should have been the one who just poof, smacked Satan down. 
And in fact, that little phrase, that work and keep phrase, um, that language of, the, of those, two, those two verbs being put together, God, being in the garden, working, keeping it, only ever come back in the Old Testament in relation to the duties of, of some of the Levites with a priestly tribe. So Adam is being pictured here in kind of priestly terms. A prophet, to speak um, God's word, pass on God's word, but also kind of priestly terms. Um, he is, if you like, the, the, the church leader of the day, even though the church is, at the moment, going to be just one person. And that's why, when we go further on in Scripture, it is Adam who is held responsible for the fall, ultimately, not Eve. Sometimes people you know, say, oh, Christianity is such a sexist religion, make it all woman's fault, you know, she ruined everything. But actually, it's exactly the opposite. Although we know it is Eve who took the fruit first... First of all, we're told Adam was stood there next to, to her. So that, you know, that's, that's by no means getting painting the picture that Adam is innocently being obedient over here and little does he know there's sort of treachery in the corner. No, he's there with her. And actually he is held responsible uh, because he is the one who represents all humanity. He was the one who was meant to guard um, Eve and guard the garden sanctuary. He was the one who's meant to speak the truth to Eve. He was the one who's meant to protect her from Satan. So when you get to the New Testament, a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, I think I put it on the sheet, it is as in Adam all die, not as in Eve that we all die. Because of Adam's sin, we all die. Or Romans 5, because of one man's trespass, okay, Adam's trespass, not Eve's, because of Adam's sin, death reigns through that one man. Uh, it is Adam, not Eve, who is held responsible because he has been put in this kind of headship role in the garden uh, Eve when you, when you turn the attention to Eve we've already seen that she's, she's made somewhat differently um, there is a difference too in her uh, her role or a distinction perhaps a better word uh, in verse uh, 18 of chapter 2 it's not good that a man should be alone I'll make him a helper fit for him it's kind of corresponding to him now it's often said in fact the first thing I've almost the only thing I've ever heard anyone say about that word helper um, is that it's not a demeaning word, and that is right, okay? So it's not a kind of, I'll make him a little maid to sort of trot around doing his bidding. It's, it's, not, it's not that kind of word. It's the word used elsewhere in the Old Testament at times for God. You know, God is our helper. Okay? So it's not, it's not a, um, I don't know, a sort of subordinate word or something like that. But, but, but that can't be the only thing we say. Of course it's not demeaning. Okay? Remember, the, chapter one, they're made equal dignity, equal value, equal worth, equal in God's image, all the rest. But it does... It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not an irrelevant word either. She is made, Isha, to be his helper. Uh, that has to have some content. And again, in the New Testament, it is a, a, a term, if you like, or a, yeah, a passage that Paul comes back to when he gets into some of the gender debates. Now, we're going to look, not going to look in detail at these now because we'll, we'll need to slow down and look at them later. But Paul is, is happy to say in 1 Corinthians 11, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Seen that already. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, that is the kind of verse that, you know, go on thought for the day on Radio 2 or 4 or whatever it is and say, you know, my, my verse for the day, you know, Man isn't created for woman, but woman for man. You're just, boom, you know, you're really, you're not going back on the radio, are you? Um, and there are obviously ways you could misuse that first. We're going to come back to that passage, okay? So, but it is still there. There is a clear leading there, isn't there? Eve is given as a helper to Adam. How is she a helper? How is she a particularly suitable helper? 
Well, it's, it's, not, it's not that Adam's lonely, verse 18. You know, man, man being alone. It's not that he's lonely and he needs a friend. You know, God could have created just a society to deal with that, you know, a bunch of mates. Uh, rather, he, he is incapable on his own of doing what he's been commanded to do. He is incapable of carrying out that cultural mandate on his own. He needs a helper corresponding to him. Different, but corresponding to him. Uh, not so much for the gardening, the tilling, the soil. Again, those are roles that are all being sort of given to him. And frankly, he can get on with on his own, can't he? Um, it's not impossible for Adam to dig a garden without a helper. And if that was the only problem, we just need, you know, got a really big vegetable patch to, to, to dig and Adam can't get there on their own. Just make another man or two. You know, that'd be fine. They could all just get on with it. But very particularly and pretty obviously, Adam cannot be fruitful and multiply. The very first command he was given, or they were given, verse 28 of chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. He obviously cannot do that uh, on his own. And so, in, in her making and in, the, in the, sort of the, uh, how she was given to Adam, Isha, the woman, the orientation is towards family, children. Her origin isn't of the earth, but it's relational. She's made from another living being. Her origin is inside the kind of garden sanctuary, not outside of it. And therefore, just as we saw with Adam, that when the curses are spoken... Um, his are directed towards the soil, hers are directed towards the family. Chapter 3 and verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now so far you might say, well fair enough, she obviously, you know, it's women who get pregnant, not men, so that makes sense. But just look how it goes on. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, this is a curse on children and marriage. Marriages are not going to work as they, they're not going to be perfect anymore. They're not going to be paradise marriages. But do you see how all the women's, all the curses spoken to the women, are, the woman, sorry, spoken to Isha, are about family and children and marriage. Even though, clearly, Adam is equally part of a marriage. Okay. It's not as if marriage has nothing to do with Adam. So, like I said, with, with the curses to Adam, this is not some absolute, you know, women must never dig in the Bible's understanding or something like that. You know, men have nothing to do with children and the family. Obviously, that's way too hard. And as we'll see, as time goes on, there is there's sort of blurring there. But in terms of kind of postures, directions, there is a leaning towards, of Adam towards the soil and work and Eve towards family. Even in verse uh, 16... Yeah, verse 16 of chapter 3. Um, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. So Eve, from now on, because of the corruption of sin, is going to be kind of grasping at her husband. And he will rule over you. That is not a kind of kind leadership. That is, the nowadays, because of sin, Adam is going to be domineering at times in a way that he should not be. So even though that's something bad about Adam, it is still spoken to Eve. And when she's then finally renamed, she's named Eve in chapter 20, sorry, verse 20, the man called his name's Eve, his wife's name Eve, and we know names have meaning, significance, they're not random, it's not like, you know, when we, we called Charlotte, Charlotte, because we like the name Charlotte, there was no kind of deep meaning to it. But in the Bible, they've got meanings, particularly here, Adam and the soil, Isha from Ish, Eve, mother of all the living. 
that the Eve word is about life and being a life giver. And that's why I think, too, the fact that there is this sort of basic orientation of man towards the work and the world and the soil and, and Eve and Isha towards the family, children, the home. Uh, that's why we get what is potentially a bit of a surprising verse in chapter 2, verse 24. Does anything seem odd about that verse? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Everything we've seen so far would, would seem to suggest that there is a sort of headship role for Adam. So you would think, wouldn't you, that it would be, um, therefore, a woman shall leave her father and mother and hold fast to her husband. You'd think the direction of travel would be woman out to man, as it were, because he's going to be the head, the head of the new household. But it's the other way around. The man is leaving and going to the woman. I don't think it's speaking about um, anything to do with headship in marriage or... Um, whose surname you take. It's not really speaking about those sort of things at all. Rather, the reason the man is heading towards the woman to start this new family unit is that she is the, if you like, um, symbolically the centre of the new family. It is going to revolve around her rather than around him. So the man goes towards the the direction of of what's being set up, i.e. a new marriage and ultimately a new family. So there we go. Very few conclusions, <laughs> I realise that, but pictures being painted um, in the garden that are going to kind of set, if you like, trajectories, set basic patterns um, that are fleshed out far more in the Old and the New um, Testaments. Um, we've got about a minute or two. Does anyone want to ask anything at this stage? Almost certainly my answer will be wait and see, but anyway, uh, at this stage, any, yeah, any questions? Hey, Mandy. Yeah. So I didn't quite catch that. Her desire. Sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we know because we know because it's in a, in a kind of cursing setting that what is being described here is not something, not a kind of blessing. You know, it's not a good thing. Obviously, so it's, it can't be saying, "Oh, I'll tell you what, from now on, Eve, you're really going to love your husband," because that you know that's that's what she's meant to do. Like that, that's not a curse. Uh, and actually, the, the desire word there. So in in the ESV. At least the one I've got. English and American ESVs differ annoyingly. Um, so I think I've got an English one, but I'm not sure. Um, my, my ESV, the Church Bible says, your desire shall be contrary to, um, which is trying to get across the sense of what's going on. And if you look at it, the, the word comes up again in, um, that phrase rather comes up in chapter four, where um, in the story of Cain and Abel, um, and you know, you know how it goes, Abel offers, they both offer their, their offerings and Cain's rejected, Abel's accepted. Um, uh, Cain gets angry. So verse six of chapter four, the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not desire, do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. It's that same phrase. 
as in chapter 3, verse 16. So sin's desire is for you, Cain. It's a kind of, it's not a kind of to bless. It's a kind of grasping, um, sort of mastering. So the idea is, I think, in the marriage context, that whilst, and again, we'll look at marriage in the future, but whilst the, the picture is meant to be one where bride and groom, bride obviously loves her husband, desires her husband in good ways, um, and in the language of uh, Ephesians 5, submits to his, to his godly leadership, uh, and he gently and lovingly leads the marriage. Um, he's head, um, and he's exercising that authority for blessing because he's a picture of Christ and she's a picture of the church. What happens in the curses is, is that, um, first half of the verse, um, your desire shall be, you're kind of desiring, almost like to pull him down, you're... Um, in the same way as sin desires to master you, Cain, you're going to try and master your husband. So the bit's kind of like, mm. and he will rule over you. Again, not in a good way, not in a loving leadership, but again, it's that kind of like, the problem, because of sin, he's going to get dom- you know, domineering in a way that he shouldn't be. Um, so it's the corruption of what should be a, a loving leadership and a loving desire into a grasping and a domineering. Um, yeah. Um, it's ten past, we ought to stop. You may have all sorts of questions, but um, grab me at some point. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we, we pray again for godliness. Uh, we confess our, our minds are clouded, uh, our hearts are cold, and we, we praise you that, that you came in grace to save. Uh, we ask that uh, you would teach us every corner of your word. We want to, uh, to be obedient uh, children, we want to flourish in all the ways you've called us to flourish, and we want to honour you in all the ways you've called us to honour you. So, um, all of this true, uh, would it bear fruit in our lives? All that's false, would it drift away? Uh, make us, we pray, godly men and women in your world. Amen. <laughs>